Hi everybody and welcome to the Golders Podcast, where we aim to sprinkle particles of knowledge by engaging and educating. With your co-hosts, father and son duo, Keith and David Mayer. We're excited to have you on this journey with us and we know our wide variety of world-class guests will provide lots of value for our listeners. To ensure you stay up to date with everything we've got going on on the podcast, make sure you subscribe. Today, we welcome Neil Bailey onto the Golders podcast. Neil is currently a regional coach educator for the PFA, working in and around professional clubs and with current and ex-pro players. He has held several coaching roles within the game, including being the youth team coach at Manchester United and the first team coach at Sunderland under Roy Keane. Neil, welcome and thank you for creating time to be with us on the Golders podcast today. Before we actually dive into your professional life, what have you actually been doing over this isolation period in the UK? Uh, it's a good question. To be honest, the two are still linked. The professional life's not, not stopped. Do you know what I mean? They've, they've kept us busy with uh, video calls. We've still been delivering the courses online. Uh, we just finished uh, a UEFA B1, uh, where we just delivered the theory aspects. Obviously, we can't do the practical bit at the minute. Uh, the pro license that's been, uh, the one that's coming to an end, uh, the end of this month, and the new one that started in January, we've been delivering presentations online to them. So, to answer your question, I've been working <laughs> during the <laughs> lockdown. And all these things about research and reading up and bettering us, it's just not happened. We've just been working. So I'm fortunate to be doing so, of course, but uh, we, we have been busy. Now, we're going to go into your coaching career shortly, but what, what did you do before coaching? What was your life like? Uh, well, again, very fortunate to have been involved in professional football from, from leaving school. So basically from leaving school to be getting into the coaching, I, w- I was a professional player. Not at the highest levels, but for, managed to forge a career in lower league football uh, from leaving school. And uh, that, that's been my life, really. It's been football. I'm fortunate to have been uh, been in it so long. Neil, talking about that, yeah. When I say you're a local lad, you know, you and I, you know, we live in the northwest, and uh, but you retired from playing in 1988. Was that right? Yeah, well, 88, 89. Yeah. Okay, uh, but you stayed on at Stockport County as a coach. Yes. That, that was, uh, again, that came out of the blue, the opportunity. Asa Hartford was manager at the time at Stockport and it was the end of the, probably the 88 season, 87, 88 possibly. Uh, and I, I always remember we played, we'd played York away on the last game of the season and on the coach journey back, uh, he, he called me to one side and asked, well, put this, his idea forward. There was no youth policy at the time. They were just sort of getting it going. 
and Asa asked me would I consider staying on as a player but unlikely to be playing in the first team but they were bringing a group of apprentices in and would I look after them and uh, and coach the youth team so I was coaching the youth team and playing in the reserves if you like alongside some of these players so that was the the introduction into coaching you cut your teeth working at that at those levels what was the transition like of you know being a player yeah and then coaching what was it like for you well again because I, I was fortunate enough to combine the two I was still playing I was I was only I think I was 29 at the time and I remember canvassing a little bit of opinion because everybody says play as long as you can there's nothing beats playing you know you'll you'll regret finishing too early and and all that which you know I, I can go along with and I can I can see the point of view but then I was also thinking at that point I was, it was league two Stockport a year here and it might be a year somewhere else and I was probably getting to that point and I was thinking in the end the thing that swayed the decision was that I thought I might not get another opportunity like this. So to combine playing and starting to develop a little bit of a, a coaching career was, was the route I, I, I took. Yeah, and good. so the transition was relatively smooth, I think, because I didn't have that immediate cut off. You can't play and now you've got to look for something to do. So which is nice it's always nice to break in gentle i guess that was probably what occurred yeah. uh, rather than going yeah. at the deep end and and i'd uh, i mean when i played at newport for six years and while i was down there we took a, a group of us took a what was the prelim then with the welsh fa uh newport in south wales so a group of us took the prelim down there uh when I left Newport, I came back up to Wigan. Again, a group of us there took the prelim as was. So I'd, I'd sort of dipped my toe in a little bit with the, the coaching world in terms of starting the qualification pathway. And like I said, the opportunity came and I took it and you start. That's off where we started. You naturally just dovetailed in from the playing, working your way in. Now, now so look, in 1992, you joined Billy Ayres on the coaching staff of Blackpool. Were yeah, you doing I, the same type of thing then? Well, I, I was already at the club, uh, Keith. I'd, I, I only did it, ended up doing a year at Stockport. Uh, Acer left. Uh, another manager came in. He left. There was a third manager. And whether they didn't see that role was happening or not, you know, playing and, and coaching, I wasn't too sure. And I, that year, I was already committed to the doing the air licence or the full, full award as it was, the full badge at that time. I was already committed to doing that. When I came back home, I'd done the two weeks down at Lillich Hall. And when I came back home, my wife had said I had a phone call from Jimmy Mullen at the time, who was manager at Blackpool. And, and when I spoke to him, he was offering me the opportunity to go to Blackpool. Uh, and that was as youth team coach, reserve team coach. By the time Billy was manager in '92, there was Billy, myself, and Steve Redmond, 
physio. That was the staff. That was your staff. That was the staff. <laughs> and when you when you look at the amount of staff involved at any level, from academy level through to first team football, you wonder how uh, how you survive because you literally did everything. Resources and yeah. being resourceful. Resources right, with your people. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So when you were at Blackpool uh, over that period of time, you you're gathering, you're learning, you're developing your skills, really, you're refining your skills. But then you get, you get an opportunity, you get a phone call uh, from United, you had an opportunity to go there and yeah. became the youth team coach. Sure how it felt being asked to go to work with some of the best players in the country, yeah, if not the world. Especially out of the blue. You know, again, it wasn't, you know, there was no contacts of, feelers or anything it literally was a phone call out of the blue and uh, I'm not saying it was the first I was first on the list I'm sure they'd have asked one or two others perhaps before that who couldn't for whatever reason take the job but uh, I requested permission to speak from the the club Sam was by that time Sam Allardyce was manager at uh, Blackpool and he kindly gave me permission to do that and uh, it went from there in terms of the conversations and interview, if you like, and took the job then. Didn't need asking twice, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just on the East Lanks, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the, as you know, the North West, we can only travel, travel an hour and we can get a game at any level, anywhere you want. You know, it's, uh, it's a fantastic area for, for football. And at the time when I was at Blackpool, the Lancashire League was as strong a league as anything, you know, and all mm. all the Northwest clubs played in that in that league. So that I suppose that was the contact he had with other clubs by playing against them, you know, at probably three levels, the B team, A team, and then reserves, of course, with the with the Central League. So it was a different pathway yeah. in those days, but a fantastic grounding. I just want to share with the listeners that you were at United at the time and I actually delivered a, I was directing a, an independent centre for the for the FA at the time and you came in at Selwyn Jones actually, local yes. high school. Yeah. And you sort of potted, you came in and it, it's just to give people the, you know, you're working at United, you're working with some tremendous players, some, you know, highly talented lads. And but you still created time to come in. It was it really for grassroots. I'd set something up for for the local grassroots community coaches. Uh, yeah. I called it Fresh Ideas. And Neil Bailey rocks up. You know, you didn't come in with anybody any badges or anything like that. You just blended into the background, and it just shows and highlights the type of person that you are. You're supporting it, but equally very open minded about wanting to find out things that possibly have already seen yeah but but, but again you I think sometimes you have to remember where you not where you came from but I, I came through grassroots football you know it was it was boys brigade local school high school you represented your town team it, it was a different pathway then but if you hadn't have been for grassroots football you, you wouldn't have played and, and developed yourself so I think the the role that grassroots plays in player development still has a 
a massive part to play. Even though academies, as we know, academies now take players from a very young age. But I think that there is still a place for grassroots football and grassroots coaches. They've a lot. They've a lot to offer. So Neil, in your time at United, did you work with any players that actually went on to play in the Premier League? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I went. I went to United in. Uh, 95, so the class of 92 that everybody remembers, the Nevilles, Nicky Butch, Scholes, uh, were, were breaking into the first team then. So they, they still dropped back down for sessions, afternoon sessions and things like that with Eric. Eric Harrison was, was youth team coach, I was assisting Eric really. But they still dropped down for afternoon sessions, technical sessions, but I can't. And I wouldn't claim any uh, influence really on on their career, but after that, there was still a, a group of players who who got through into the first team. It was a tough team to get into then because it was a young team, and these players were already in and establishing themselves. But the likes of Wes Brown and uh, Darren Fletcher, John O'Shea, following that, Kieran Richardson, uh, Phil Bardsley got in and around it, but have gone on and David Jones, who's gone on to have decent Premier League careers. Dan Higginbottom was another one. Another one who who didn't, he got into the first team, but didn't establish himself really there. David Healy, striker, who's, I think he's still the top scorer for Northern Ireland, went on and had a big career. Danny Webber, another player. Great, you know, great lads and have gone on to forge a, a good career in football without establishing themselves in, in United's first team. So you mentioned, Go on, you mentioned Eric, no, you're okay. You mentioned Eric Harrison's name. What, yes. What was it like working with him? Well, I mean, Keith, you said earlier on about cutting your teeth and Blackpool especially, where you were doing everything, centre of excellence, recruitment, Reserve football, helping Billy out with the first team. You literally had to do everything. So you were spreading yourself thin in a way, but it was a brilliant education in terms of the the, the skills and qualities you needed. And you think, or you thought you knew a little bit about coaching, but it was only when I went went there to United that you you realise how much you don't know. Uh, You know, and just sitting, sitting in the staff room, was an education and listening to, you know, the, just the discussions that went on. And Eric, as, as everybody knows now, you know, he had a brilliant reputation f- for working with young players and in particular that, that group of players. So in terms of what you learned, it, it wasn't really complicated. You know, it, his observation was absolutely first class. You know, he didn't miss a thing. In, in training, in games, and, and his knowledge and observation of what was going on was first class. So I, I think that was probably the, the, the first thing I picked up on him, you know, in, in terms of observation. You know, you had, to, you had to know what was going on on that football field, generally, but also individuals as well. You know, he knew what individuals needed and how to, how to get the best out of them and how to develop them. Mm. How did he manage him, Neil? The, the youth oh, team generally? 
Yeah, I mean, I would have oh, well, if you remember that at that time, there was the A team, the Lancashire League Division One. There was the B team, Lancashire League Division Two. We sort of the A team was an open age team, and then you still had the reserves to get into before the first team. But so the A team was open age, but we ran it probably as the second years and first year pros. The the B team that I took was probably the first years, the under seventeens. You had some of the better schoolboys coming in playing, but also if any of the under 18s weren't in the A team, they could play. So it was a sprinkling of, of age groups. During the week, we ran it pretty much like that. First, you know, B team against A team. We had a game of a game of football every day. There'd be some, you know, technical work and skill work, skill practices, but we'd have a 45 minute game every single day and if there was 20 training it was 10 v 10 if there was 16 training it would be 8 v 8 7 9 v 8 but it was always a game players playing in their position on the pitch which I thought was a brilliant education for me uh, because they were they were learning through playing the game of football I think sometimes today we think there's all sorts of sessions that that can produce players when really players produce themselves by playing football. And the tempo, I would imagine, would be be quite. Oh high, well, it was it? a big. Yeah, the, the standards were were high in training at every level, first team level. The standard of the game with them was in. You know, they weren't long sessions, but. High intensity, high quality, and the players challenged each other. I think that that was the big thing I took from the time there. The players mm. pushed each other day in day out to keep that standard high. So, in terms of method of delivery or interventions, give us some examples of the type of intervention. Was it a stop, stand still? Were you going in and very rarely talk now? Yeah. We'd have uh, every day they did a thing, and, and players who've who've played uh, under Eric and and I sort of took it on from that. And anywhere else I've been, I've always used this practice every single day. They would do the uh, the four ball routine, it was called, which was just whatever players you had and four balls amongst them, and just passing and moving around the football field with no direction, no. But it, it, it formed the basis of how United's teams played at that time. The ball moved around the team quickly and receiving was, you know, high standard. The passing was of high standard. So that was done every day. And then generally just a game of football. And there might be one or two interventions during that. It would be working to a theme. The, the, session, the game might be aimed at the strikers for example, the movement of the strikers. So the focus of the practice was on them, but everybody else was linked in because they were involved in getting the ball to the strikers. Sure. But there was a, one of the best lessons when you talk about interventions. Uh, we used to have a... There was a thing at the time at the club about cutbacks. If, if players were in a good position, but it was a bad angle or a tight angle you're expected to cut the ball back to somebody in a better position. 
and one day in training, I'll never forget a lad called John Macken, who went on to, uh, he played for City, Preston. Had, again, had a good career without making it at United, but had a good career. And he was through on goal, striker, through on goal, tight angle, and he shot for goal. And the keeper saved it. Sunday's in the middle. And I'm thinking, here we go. Eric will, <laughs> Eric will be in here. He's going to get this, this lad. And, and I'll never forget it. Eric just shouted to me. He said, John, what did you see? And he said, uh, well, I saw, I saw him in the middle, but I fancied my chances to, to score. And he went, okay. No, if he'd have said, what he would have done if he had just said, I hadn't seen him in the middle? <laughs> I, I never found out. But I thought that was a clever, it was a clever intervention. He was checking what the player had seen rather than he should have cut it back there and I'm in and I'm going to put it right. So it was a, it was a non-intervention intervention. intervention. <laughs> and it was a great lesson. It was a great, sometimes yeah. I think we've got to be patient as coaches and, it's not about what we see, it's what are the players seeing. Yeah, in, uh, in that, and that's a, you know, a defined, not a defining moment, but in, you know, he, those little special nuggets that come out. Yes, yeah. You know, like you remembered, it, it's yeah. great, isn't it? You yeah. Know, particularly coming from vast experience as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you, then you remember it. Yeah. And there was so, times when, you know, it just... It, it, that's what I meant about his observation. It, you, it didn't mean players would get away with anything. He might bring it up, you know, he'd have a little break in, during that 45-minute game and he'd, he'd refer and he'd pick something out that had happened and he'd, he'd give the players the information to recognise it next time and how to solve it and how to... Or he'd ask them, you know, what, like I said, what, what did you see? So it, it was just a, a lesson in, in learning you didn't always have to step in as a coach to to make your point and and be seen to be coaching. And that's one of the things, you know, on the, I remember it was night, 1985, I, I did my, down at Lillish Hall, as you did, I did my full badge and it was very methodical. You know, it's different when you're working around clubs. You get, yeah. your, co you get your coaching qualifications and it's yeah. just a framework, isn't it? But then when yeah, you see artists work, yeah, I think People there was were a, exemplars. Yeah, there was, I think the, there, there was always a misunderstanding about the air license and the, the it, people thought it was always about you know it, it ended up it was about 11, 11 against eleven setting your team up to go and play a game of football. I don't think it ever was trying to send the message that you had to do that every day and every session, but certainly at some point during the week leading up to a game. You had your players have to know what the roles and responsibilities are, so that might just be a thirty-minute, forty-minute session in your week. The rest of the time, you've got to have a variety. And uh, but I think the message got out that they were trying to say, "Oh, you have to coach that way all the time," and you don't. You know, yeah. and the, and the courses have got better at that. I think in terms of that flexibility and different styles and ways of delivering sessions. Which is which is great because everybody's yeah. individual anyway, aren't they? You know. You, so I just want to strip it back a little bit. You mentioned yeah. earlier about every day you you do a four ball game, and 
in terms of size dimension, we don't like going to the you know sixty by forty, but no. were you working in small, tight areas, or were you on half a pitch, uh, uh, long passing, short passing, every, all of that, it, depending on who, how many were training that particular day. You, you, if, if there's twenty odd training, which sometimes we did, we might split that into two halves of the pitch, and one group would work on it in one half, and the other group work on it in the other. Usually, it used to work out about a ball between three, something like that, so I've always tried to, to work on it. So you're not spending forever on the ball, but you, you have a chance to receive, and you know, there was, there was a variety of, not conditions, but challenges, you know, it's challenges now, isn't it? You know, how different ways of receiving it, different types of passes, different length of passes. So you tried to bring, you, everything came out in it. It was unopposed. And, and if you were losing the ball in that practice, <laughs> then you know, the, the idea was not to, you know, that was the challenge. Because when you got into the games, they played a possession-based game of football, which was just transferring the ball routine onto a pitch. But you obviously had the direction to go in because you had to try and score a goal. We're talking about Man United here. There was quite a lot going on in it, you know. Yeah. And uh, players they used to say, Oh, four ball, four ball. When you speak to them now, I think quite a few of them use it now as they're getting into coaching, and uh, they certainly see the value of what, what it was all about. So you got consistency, yeah, yeah, and you know people talk about awareness and players who can see things and you know it must be natural to them it, what they, they practiced they worked on it they practiced it day after day after day and it yeah. you'll have heard it Keith check look check check shoulders and, and you hear it all the time and everywhere you go but i don't think it's necessarily coached as well as uh, as well as it could be now, we're talking about the simplicity of a practice here. Yes. But there's a complication. It's sort of simple setup, and but intricate detail going in and yes. very keen, astute, laser-guided uh, uh, observations from both yourself and Eric. And and there's others. I mean, Jim Ryan was there at the time and Brian Kidd at first team with the manager. So it was things just passed down throughout that. It was expected. It was a major part of the the club and the, the way they played. And it was just carrying on what others had done. So you've touched on in that last little part, Neil, around the, the passing, the controlling, you, you're doing it unopposed and you go into opposed. Yeah. You once had Paul Scholes in one of your training sessions who had everything when it comes to passing. Yeah. Can you share what it was like Having him, having him in that session? That day, I can. Yeah, it was, it, it's, still, it's still a vivid memory. Uh, again, Paul, he was in the first team, established in the first team at that time. He'd come up through that passing and receiving routine. Like I say, he practised it. You know, when people say he could see passes before anybody else, it's because he was taught to look and, and you know, scan and look for the picture before he received the ball uh, and it was a period 
Eric had been, he had this idea of players dictating the tempo of the game and, and he'd been looking at practices to come over and he came up with this particular practice and we'd been working at it for a few weeks really and, and it, it could get quite messy because it was a, it was a tough challenge. I'll, you know, without going, it was like a, a box, players on the outside, two defenders in the middle and one attacker. Well, the attacker was playing with the players on the outside. Uh, and he had this picture of how it would work and some of the players started to get it but couldn't, others couldn't get it, they couldn't get on the ball. It was a real challenging session. And then one day, Rob Swire, who was the, uh, the physio at the time, had asked me, he said, what are, you, what are you doing today? So I, I explained, and we're in the middle of it doing this practice. He said, can Scholesy join in? I said, of course. Can he, can he join in? Of course he can. Uh, he's just coming back from injury, and it might be a good session for him to get involved. He came in, and he gave a masterclass, an absolute masterclass. They couldn't get the ball off him. You know, he was stopping it, slowing it down, quickening the pace, playing. He was never off the ball, whereas the younger lads, when they were doing it, couldn't get on it. He was never off it. He just controlled the practice, exactly what, what we'd been trying to get across. So it, it was as good a coaching session for the players as they'd had off Eric and me, really. And then the other thing I remember, at the end of it, we all, it was on a day where Eric always finished with a little bit of running, you know, the fitness side, he still believed in, in that type of work. And scores he won every, every one. Mm. It was as though he's come in and to sort of say, that's the standard. If you want to get into our team, this is the standard you've got to get to. And uh, like I say, it's still a vivid memory for me, for me. I can still see him doing it. So with that, Neil, I'm going to delve a bit deeper with it. What was it about Scolzi that stuck in your memory what specific qualities did he have that made him so memorable uh well is there his range of passing was incredible his vision and awareness was incredible uh but like i say he practiced that i don't think it was all natural i think he was taught to before he received it what what was the picture so we would know when to receive and turn, he'd know when to set it back. He practiced things like that, but then was able to transfer it in, onto the, the biggest stage. So his technical receiving and passing and vision was you know, as good as you, you would see. But he was tough as well. You know, he's got this reputation being shy and quiet and he'd look after himself. You know, he had that toughness about him that people wouldn't mess him about you know he, he, he could tackle he would people criticize him but he, he could when needed he, he would he would tackle hard and win the ball and, and just had that attitude to to become as good as he could be hmm. so you touched on the vision and the awareness yeah how important is that I mean what for, for, for coaches listening in how important is it uh, it's a key quality to have, I think. And the, the higher up players go and the higher, higher the standard, the more important it becomes because I think a lot of players can see what they have to do and, but 
you know, and execute the, I think we've got a lot of players who can execute passes and do things. It's getting in a position to be able to do it and at the speed that you're expected to do it these days. The tempo is getting faster and faster all the time. So to be able to, I think the execution of things sometimes is the easy bit. It's the recognising and getting into, you know, into a position to receive to play forward or assessing that space, can I get that pass in? You know, it's the recognition and decision-making that has to get higher the, the further up you go, the, uh, the, the levels. So the, the vast importance in it, do you think and do you see coaches working on that and utilising it enough? Uh, it's probably never enough. I think I think there are more doing it. And like I said, I think everybody, everywhere I go, you can hear, look over your shoulder. I think there's more to it than that. It's, it's what are you seeing when you look over your shoulder and, and how does that inform the next part of what you do when you either receive it or, or move into another position if it's not on to receive it. So I think there's, there's more can be done. I think we're, we're certainly getting better. The, 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 the results of our national youth teams in recent years, I think, shows that we have got technically gifted players, you know, and physically they're as good as they've ever been and, and as good as any throughout Europe and the world. I, I would argue that all the time. I think it's the other side of this four-corner model that we all work to now, the, the social and the psychological side that we've probably got a little bit more to do you know how do we make players a bit more resilient to uh, to deal with these things you know they, they get setbacks players will get setbacks and how do they overcome that so I, I probably drifted off tack a little bit there but in terms of receiving but I, th- I think receiving is something we need to continue to work at we still I still see players losing the ball cheaply when with a bit of guidance, they could receive it and retain it a lot better. We're talking about guidance, Neil. Yeah, you were you worked under Sir Alex for a period of time. What was it like? Uh, well, again, that's all part of that. You think you know coaching till you get there, you know. And uh, it, it, it was the things you picked up there. I mean, his work ethic. Uh, his attention to detail. Again, when I, I think the first week I was there, I remember asking Eric in a quiet, you know, then come on and sum it up. What what do I what will be expected of me, and what will be expected of the team that I'm taking? You know, and it was well, they've got to work hard, they've got to express themselves, they've got to get, got to play good football. You know, you can argue what is good football, but you've got to play. A game where they express themselves, show good skills, show good techniques. And just as I thought he was coming to the end of it, he went pointing to the manager's office. He said, oh, and he likes winning. <laughs> so I quickly realised that he had to do a bit of everything. You know, they had to play well, they had to work hard, and that, but they had to try and win. So, mm. especially... That, that was him, you know, he, he was competitive in everything. You know, the quizzes we had, dear me. He, uh, he was so competitive at everything that, that they did. And I think that rubbed off on, on everybody else. But I've got to say, it was never, ever 
there was times when you could win a game if you hadn't played well. You know, you couldn't take a lot of satisfaction from it. And there was occasions when you'd played really well, and especially at younger levels, where I was the youth team, you could play really well, and yeah, something had gone against you, or you, you hadn't, you know, you hadn't won the game. If the perform level of performance was good enough, you could still take some credit for that. But ideally, you had to have both. So yeah, pressure. That, that no was pressure the, then, Neil. Yeah, no pressure. No, no. <laughs> I was talking to somebody recently, and I remember I'd not been there long, and we played Man City in the Lancashire League at Platt Lane. You'll know Platt Lane. Uh, and we came in at half time. I had no idea. We came in at half time as we got into the dressing room. The manager sat there. This was a B team game on a Saturday morning, and the manager was sat in the dressing room. And I'm thinking, whoa, he never said, you know, I did what I did and reviewed my idea of the first half and what I thought. And what do I do here? No, so I just off, Gaffer, do you want to, is there anything you want to say? And he did. He just made a couple of points and. That was it. But I'm thinking, and whether that was part of my initiation or, you know, to come in and listen to what I had to do it after, I've no idea. Never, there was no further comment on it. It was just that it got in on the Monday morning and business as usual. And at, and at that time, you know, his involvement at youth level was, for a manager at that level, was incredible. I think as time went on and the demands on Premier League managers got mm. more and more, you know, he couldn't devote the same amount of time, but it, he always took an active interest in in the youth players and and everybody knew that, so it just kept everybody striving to maintain the standards. We actually had Luke Chadwick on the podcast, Neil, and... Yeah. Luke told a story of when he came, he went up to United and yeah. he was heading back down home to Cambridge and he's got home and, and Sir Alex has actually called up, he's actually called yeah. Luke's parents yeah. to offer him a spot at the club. He's only 14. Yeah. So he, he's a young kid, got home and, and at this time United are to the powerhouse. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Biggest club in the world. I remember, well, when... We talked earlier about how it came about when I, I went to United and uh, I, was, I got home, with, I was at Blackpool at the time, we, we played Morecambe on a Friday night uh, up at Morecambe at Christie Park and when I got home after the game, my wife said, oh, the, uh, the manager's rung. This was well into the process of, you know, was it happening, was it not? Uh, I told him he had a game and all that. He's ringing back at whatever time, half, quarter past ten, half past ten, something like that. And the phone went, bang on. The first question he asked me was, how did you get on? And you're thinking, wow, you know, it just showed, he was, he was a football, he's a football person, always has been and always will be. You know, it was the football that, you know, the fact that he took an interest and took, made time to, ask about things like that was just rubbed off on everybody. You're very fortunate to spend your time at United. Now, in 2007, you actually went with Roy Keane to Sunderland and became the first team coach. Yeah. How did that come about and, and what was the experience like? 
uh, again, and you might think this is, you know, almost made up. It, it, it literally was a phone call from Roy. Uh, and again, I'm, well, I do know. I think he had tried other people who, for whatever reason, couldn't move to the to Sunderland at that time. So again, I'm, I'm not pretending that'd be first choice or anything like that. But it was literally a phone call. Would would you be interested in in coming up and working at Sunderland? And again, it just you know went through the right channels and procedures, and uh, it went from there. And I did work, did work with the first team, and then also did some work with the reserves. Back at the probably the third season, I was there. Work with the work with the reserves. So it was a fantastic experience. Not too dissimilar from what I what what had happened at United because obviously Roy would take a lot of the the principles that he worked to at United and, and tried to take them and and establish them up at Sunderland. And it and it did. It, I mean it, it was a fantastic period really from being in, you know and it that had started before I went Roy. They were bottom of the championship uh, I think when Roy went in the August, September. I only went in well, all that was around about December time. I started in January. So they'd already started the climb, but to end up winning the league that year and finish as champions was, a, was an incredible achievement, you know, and an object lesson in momentum, I think. And then the stand, obviously the standard, you get into the Premier League and uh, it becomes a whole different, different experience then, you know, for a, a club as big as Sunderland and it is a big club you know the fan base was incredible the fans were brilliant that's one thing I'll always remember it from working at first team level they were they were honest and they were fair you know if, if you hadn't tried if you hadn't performed they, they would let you know but it didn't take win your next tackle and they were behind you 100% they were proper supporters they did support the team quick to let you know if you weren't meeting their expectations but uh, they, they supported the team and uh, did everything they could to help the team win and uh, again it, it was a brilliant experience for me at working at that level So with that experience what specifics what did you learn from it and, and did it help and shape how you now think about the game? Uh it did because up to then, apart from you know, there, there was periods at Blackpool, like I said, when with the skeleton staff almost, you were involved to a degree in the first team, but it wasn't my my responsibility to help the team win. I was so up to then, I'd probably always been in development, you know, and developing players, and so to, when I went up to Sunderland, suddenly you know, you know, you're still trying to work with players and get them better and. But you're at a level now where you had to win a game of football, you know, and it was important to uh, to get the three points. So in terms of, I think you always you always have to believe in how you think the game should be played. And Roy was, you know, again very simple, nothing complicated, work hard, turn up on time, play, express yourself. That was that would be it. There'd be nothing uh, too complicated beyond that. So, so it was similar in that respect, and in your, in terms of how you thought the game should be played. 
managing players at that level was different. You know, they, they still expected things from you, even though they were senior players at first team level. They still wanted help. They still wanted information. So you had to raise your game a little bit in that respect. And if anything, in terms of informing how I work, it's probably helped me more now in, in the role I am now in terms of coach education. Because I think context and understanding where the coach is at is a massive thing. And by doing spending time in development, but also spending time at the sharp end where you, you had to try and win a game, helps you in terms of the different coaches that you work with today in, in the role I'm doing now. You're a regional coach educator for the professional, the PFA, the Professional Football Association, and you've just dipped your feet in a little bit around what your role basically entails in regards to what you're looking for, for yeah. other coaches and their expectation, which I think is very, it's a very uh, astute way of looking at it, Neil, because, you know, you get coaches that are on courses, there are maybe a, a level two and they're going for the B license. They're still yeah. only level two coaches, yes. aren't they? Yeah. And having that perception and understanding of it obviously must help that. You've got to, you've got to strip back your, I guess, detail, but how you manage that, yes. which I think is yeah. an excellent quality. And it's a great way, you know, you're understanding it. Because if you get to understand who you are, where you are, you've obviously got a good understanding of them as well. Yeah. And like I said, in, in the role I do now, it, we, we can be delivering a level two course to apprentices who's, you know, and we understand this, we're not naive enough to that. They're there to be footballers. They want to get a contract and make it into the first team and what's coaching, you know. And so how we sell it sometimes can be a challenge, you know, and uh, I tend to call them just football courses now and not even mention it being a coaching course, you know, like, by the end of this, you might we might know a bit more about football and try and do it that way. But you can be doing it the way you're trying to enthuse somebody about coaching, right to the other extreme, uh, the pro license where players are, you know, looking. Some are managers at that point, you know, and uh, or certainly coaching at a good level, looking to become managers. Uh, so you've got that really broad uh, range of candidates if you like and and you've got to not only have you got to be aware of the different ranges but within each range people are different aren't they and they're looking for to get different things from it so I think it's become a, a lot easier with the in-situ support you'll be aware of that now where it's not all just deliver a course and off you go and come back and we'll assess you and if you're good enough you pass if you, there's a lot more support going out to coaches through that pathway and the fact that the coach and their own players makes it a little bit more realistic and you know if you if you work off that it, it's a lot easier to give them the support that that they need I think. So Neil for you as a as a player and a coach now and coach educator who have yeah. been your role models in this journey? What is it? What is it that appeals to you about them? Well, I mean, it's, it, again, it's not. A, if, if we're talking about role models, I'll, I'll not go beyond my parents, really. You know, and uh, 
the upbringing I had, with you know, and, and the courses now are always about getting to know the person and the, the personal values and the personal qualities that that you need as a player, as a coach, and as a coach educator. I think so. In terms of influences in that respect, I think you know the values and principles that they instilled still stand me in good stead now you know when you're trying to help people and 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 always try and see things from from their point of view so there's that aspect of it and like I said the courses now spend a lot of time on that you know coach the person don't coach the player uh, or don't don't coach just the player because they're all human beings with their own uh, strengths and 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 weaknesses so I try and see it from that point of view the human aspect you know you look at it from that point of view and develop them as people as well as and along the way you hope they become better players in terms of you know I know again in terms of role models uh, I, I had a good upbringing at Burnley I was an apprentice at Burnley from leaving school who we were in the first division then equivalent to the Premier League now that was always a, a club that was renowned for developing players and coaching players so I was fortunate in that respect that I've seen it right from the start of my football career coaches working with players to make them better so I'll never forget that experience Len Ashurst, Jimmy Goodfellow at Newport were the coaches who gave me my debut in the league taught you a lot about playing football for real I'll never forget them Uh, Billy Eyre as you know, manager. Acer, I'll not forget, he gave me my first opportunity. So there's, there's people throughout, littered throughout your career. Bill at Blackpool got me involved with the first team a little bit. Uh, he was a great person and great fella to work for. So it sounds a bit of a cop-out and I don't want it to do, but I think throughout your career you come across people who you take things from and add to your own personality and your own without trying to copy people, because you can't. Ultimately, you've got to be yourself, I think, and find your own way of, of delivering as a coach or now as a, as a coach educator. Keith, no, you know, when I first got into coach education, thrown in at the deep end, uh, people like PK, John Peacock and Dick, good friend of, of yours, Keith, you know, was a master, you know, so you, you, you're picking things up off them all the time, you know, to, to add to your own way of doing things. You can't get away from, it's got to be your way in the end, but you're adding bits all the time as you go along. I've taken, I've tried to take things from everybody. You know, we mentioned grassroots, you know, you, you come across coaches who are brilliant with kids, you know, tap into them. They might not be the best technical coach or have the best knowledge of the game at the highest level, but get the best out of those kids. I like watching those people work because you can pick something up, you know, to to add to your own repertoire, your own. Add another golf club in the back of, in your bag on your shoulder. So, yeah, I, I don't think I've ever seen a, a bad session. I don't think I've ever seen a bad presentation. You try and take the best out of everything that that you can. I think the the mentality to want to continually to learn nearly is very evident. Going forward, yeah, for coaches now, what skills do you think the future coach 
needs to develop. Right. Uh, a good. We could spend a, a good period of time on this. Again, I'll start off with uh, with Eric. I always asked Eric to sum it up when I was working there. You know, come on, break it down. What what are the th- what are the key things you need to be good at at this? And he's, he always gave me three. Uh, be organised, good observation, you've got to understand what's going on and be able to put it right, and you've got to inspire. And there is three key qualities for a coach. Organisation, observation, inspiration. So, and I've always kept that. Now, beyond that, I think that, you know, society's changed, players have changed, how you handle players there's got to be different. There's, there's, that managing difference has become a, a real key feature. Whereas when I was playing, when I was being brought, you know, one size fits all. That was the team. You all got the same treatment. You all got the same, to a degree. I think the best coaches even then, in those days, would treat players slightly differently. But I think you've got to get to know the individuals, get to know the players, what makes them tick because they all need a different style of coaching from you. So you've got to be so varied in how you deliver your, your, how you transfer that knowledge across. I think that's a big one. So the the players learn in different ways. So you've got to be able to teach in different ways. And then I think the big area that's coming in now is data. The modern coach has to be aware of data. I don't think you can ever get away from the coach's eye. I think that's still the key, that observation skill, if you like. But it can be supported now by a lot of evidence, analysis, individual analysis, player analysis. I think that's that's here to stay. So I think the modern coach now has to have a, an ability to understand the data and the technology, the clipping. The, that's here to stay. So I think you might as well get as good as you can with support from analysis people and sports science. But uh, I think that'd be it. But I don't get far away from that organisation, observation and inspiration. I like those three, Neil. I like those a lot. I think anybody that is coaching, and, and to be honest, I think that goes beyond coaching. I think if you're a teacher in a classroom, if you're in a business setting, those three qualities yeah. can take you a long way and yeah. the ability to inspire people, yeah. make them believe and, and provoke change within them. So they, yeah. they're actually willing to change off the inspiration you give them. Uh, yeah. Great qualities. The, yeah. the three, I like those a lot. Yeah. I really do. And I think still it links in a little, the job now, the coach education, you know, the in situ bit now where you, you're watching coaches deliver sessions with their own players. It should be based around what what's going on in that context. I think sometimes, not annoys me a little bit, but you have to point it out to coaches. I think sometimes they think they have to coach a certain way because I'm there. And really, they don't you have to coach what's required at that particular time for that group of players. I'll feed off and give you feedback based around that and understanding that context. So that range of 
coaching styles and communications it, it, it's vital these days you know because the people you're working with are so varied and have their own motivations and their own way of uh, of playing so noticing is still vital for me as a coach educator that observation of you know and sometimes I pick up on things that and just ask, ask the coaches why, you know, you didn't go in there or you did go in there. Why was that? And the coach development now has become more, much more of a two-way approach as opposed to having to tick certain boxes to pass a, pass a qualification. And I, mm. I think for the better. Yeah. Look, Neil, really, really enjoyed having you on. Uh, I'd like to thank you as well. I know I did my B licence with you. So yes, I know, learned yeah. a, a good well, three, four, four, three, four years ago now and yeah. learned a great deal. And we spent quite a bit of time outside of the course chatting and yes, get up for yeah. a coffee. And I'm very thankful yeah. for that because that's certainly helped me along my journey. Uh, but also for your time today, we've, we've thoroughly enjoyed it. And the knowledge and expertise that you've got that you're, you're sharing with the people that you, you work with, the people that you educate, the people that are listening now are going to get some of that too. Yeah, well, it, it's a pleasure. It's not a problem coming on. It's, uh, well, there's nothing beats getting the ball out and, and talking about football, is there? Look, Neil, can't thank you enough. Stay safe and hopefully we'll see you soon. Yeah, look after yourselves. Thanks a lot. Thanks, David. Thanks, Keith. Thanks for tuning in to the Golders podcast today. If you enjoyed this episode and you haven't already subscribed, please do so. Your continued support is highly appreciated and it means so much to us knowing that the content that's being produced is providing value in people's lives. If you would like to know more or get more information from us, you can follow us on Twitter at Gold Dust Podcast. And also you can visit our website at thegolddustcoach.com. Thank you, everybody.